Hey everybody, welcome to Your Move, I'm Andy Stanley. Did you know that sometimes the difference between success and failure is simply the way that you see and then interpret the problem? It's true, stick around and we'll talk about it right here on Your Move. Well, we're starting a brand new series today uh, called David. We're gonna talk about the life of King David. Uh, The story takes place and begins in about the 11th century BC. As you know, David was a lot of things. He ended up being the king. We're introduced to him as a boy. But ultimately, he lived in a very, very, very violent time. In fact, it's really almost impossible for us to get our minds and our hearts um, around the kind of world that David lived in or that anyone lived in in ancient times, especially when it comes to ancient warfare. When it comes to ancient warfare, here's what we do, and we can't help it. We glamorize it, we fictionalize it, we sanitize it, we romanticize it, you know, we do all kinds of things. And Hollywood has helped us um, with Braveheart, you know, it went to another level. Gladiator, it went to another level. But even on Hollywood's best day, there's no way to take us into the world of ancient warfare because you have to smell it and you have to fear it. And it's something that most of us, fortunately, will never even have to get close to, but even those that get close never get as close as the men, and in some cases, even the women of ancient times when it came to warfare. In modern warfare, we kill from a distance. In ancient warfare, you killed at arm's length. You actually looked into the eyes of your opponent. You smelled their breath. And unless you too are a veteran of the shield wall, the odds of you walking away alive were very, very low. Only after the battle would you know what your wounds were because the adrenaline rush was such that only as the adrenaline subsided and drained away did you know where you were wounded. And you would have to try to figure out what was your blood and what was the blood of your opponent because you would be covered in blood, either yours or someone else's. And if it were yours and you were able to stop the bleeding, the chances are you would die of some sort of infection. In fact, in ancient times, men often fought almost completely naked because although they didn't understand germs, they did understand this, that if a puncture wound took part of your clothing into the wound, you would lose a leg, you would lose an arm, perhaps you would lose your life. And if your brother to the left or to the right lost their courage and turned and ran, you would most certainly die on the battlefield. And before anyone could come and take your body, rescue your body, or bury you, the birds of the air and the beast of the field would be there to prey upon your flesh. Isn't that like the greatest introduction to a sermon you've ever heard <laughs> in your whole life? Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. Now the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. And you know this story. And a champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span about nine and a half feet tall. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, about 15 pounds. This was not a throwing javelin. This was a killing, a stabbing spear. It was about six feet long and on the end, the steel weighed about 15 pounds. And Goliath, no doubt, because of his height, would stand in the second rank and he could reach over the first rank of his own army and kill and kill and kill and kill and kill. So Goliath stood 
And he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Saul was the king of Israel and Saul was Israel's first king. Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and you will serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. But on hearing this, on, over, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, King Saul, and all the Israelites were dismayed and they were terrified. And Goliath came out day after day after day after day for weeks. And Israel needed a champion. And they looked to their king. And they looked to their king for two reasons. Number one, he was the king. And number two, Saul, King Saul, was the tallest man in Israel. When he was chosen as king, one of the reasons he was chosen, he was handsome and he was head and shoulders higher, taller than everybody else. So when a giant walks into the valley and challenges the nation of Israel, the armies of Israel, you look for your tallest guy. And it was the king. And they had placed their hope in their king as they should have done. And in, by placing their hope in their king, they waited for the king to come out of his tent and to challenge Goliath. That's where their hope lay. And this is where our story begins to intersect with this story from the Old Testament. Because here's what's true of you and what's true of me. We place our hope in what we depend on. It's just what we do. We place our hope in what we depend on. We place our hope in who we depend on. And when the person that we place our hope in disappoints us, oftentimes the measure of our hope becomes the measure of our disdain or the measure of our anger. Certainly it is the measure of our disappointment. This is why you and this is why I have the potential to resent our parents more than anyone else because our hope was or perhaps still is in them. Saul, in the story, is conspicuously missing. His credibility slipped away as each day passed with no response. And as his credibility waned, the army's hope died. The army's hope went away as well. Now, this stalemate between the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines, it really illustrated the fact that God never really wanted Israel to have a king anyway. That God wanted, God wanted Israel to look to him to be the king because God knew, as we all knew, that wherever you place your trust, that's where you place your hope. And God wanted Israel to place their hope in him. In fact, in the very beginning, about 400 years before this event, about 400 years before this event, God established Israel as a theocracy, basically a nation of laws that was administered by judges, that God would be the king and God would give the law, and the judges would administer the law, and that's how the nation was to go. And this put Israel, this is amazing, especially if you're a bit skeptical about the Bible or new to Christianity, this put Israel ahead of, of everybody else really in the world by thousands and thousands of years. I mean, this was amazing because the model that they had seen, the model they grew up with in, in, fair, in Egypt, the model was every nation had a king. They had just left Egypt, and Egypt had a pharaoh. This is what you did. And so eventually, eventually, as they looked around, they decided that they too needed a king. Now, this is the 11th century. In the 11th century, they complained to their leading authority, who was a prophet named Samuel. 
And here's what happened. This is just a few years, really, before the incident with Goliath. Here's what happened. When Samuel, who was the prophet, who was the go-to person because there was no king, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's judges because Samuel knew that he didn't have many years left and he needed to replace himself, so he replaced himself with his sons. But... His sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. That is, they they were corrupt, and yet they were the judges. And whoever had the most money, the case always went their way. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, you are old. That's not all they said to him. They said, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. All the cool kids have a king. All the cool nations have a king. We want a king. The story continues. But when they said to Samuel, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And this is what the Lord said to Samuel after he prayed. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king because I established Israel in such a way that I would be their king. And Samuel, the fact that they want you to appoint a king, they're not not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. So listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. In other words, let the people know this isn't gonna be as easy as they think. This isn't gonna be as simple as they think. If you have a king, the king is going to tax you. He's gonna take a percentage of your crops. He's gonna take a percentage of your herds. He's gonna draft your sons. He's gonna force your daughters to serve him. He's gonna claim the best land. And yet, in spite of all the warnings, the elders insisted, we want a king. But the interesting thing is the nation's insistence, the nation's insistence set the stage for one of the most detailed narrative accounts in all of ancient literature. It set the stage for the story of King David, Israel's second king, but arguably, as we're gonna see, Israel's greatest king. And he was Israel's greatest king not because he was a perfect man or a perfect king, He was arguably Israel's greatest king because as we'll see, there was something in him that was reluctant. There was something in him that was extraordinarily confident, but there was something in him that was extraordinarily humble as well. And unlike the average king, even unlike the average king in Israel, unlike the average king or the typical king, David actually loved the law. Now kings typically did not love laws. Kings love to be the law. In fact, when a king broke the law, they would often adjust the law to match the words of the king because the king's words were the final words. And yet throughout his reign, we discover that David actually loved the law even when the law condemned him. And instead of changing the law or adjusting the law, it's it's an incredible story, David allowed himself to be broken over God's law. And throughout the literature that he wrote and throughout the Psalms, he declares that he loves God's law because he believed in fact that Israel's law was the law that God had given the nation. And that conviction, and this is a big takeaway for many of us, that conviction provided him with extraordinary, extraordinary clarity as king. Throughout his imperfect reign, throughout his imperfect reign, he was never confused. David was never confused about the identity of Israel's true king. He never was confused about his limited role. And in spite of his popularity, in spite of his talent, 
in spite of his success and in spite of his extraordinary power, he was never, ever confused. For many of us, that's not the case. Success confuses the best of us. A little bit of success and the next thing you know, we're sitting on the throne of our lives. And once we're on the throne of our lives, we place our hope in us because we place our hope in the one we depend upon the most. David, the king of Israel, never made that mistake. In fact, we catch a glimpse of this extraordinary perspective when he was a 15-year-old shepherd boy trying to stay out of the way of his older brothers who fought for King Saul. So back to the story. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and they were terrified. And while this is going on, 15-year-old, just got his learner's license, couldn't even drive himself to the battlefield, right? 15-year-old David shows up with a care package from home. And like any curious young man or teenager, he makes his way to the front of the lines because something is going on and he hears Goliath's taunts. And he hears Goliath's speech. It's the same speech that he gives twice a day. This has been going on for a month. And David responds. But instead of being dismayed and terrified, David is offended. He hears that Saul is looking for a champion to fight Goliath and he begins to ask questions. And even the questions that David asked as a 15 year old boy allow us to see that he saw with a clarity that no one else in Saul's army had. He asked, the text tells us, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? And these men of war looking at this teenage boy saying, why do you ask? What do you mean what will be done? And by the way, remove this disgrace from Israel. We haven't really seen it that way. What we've seen is a nine and a half foot tall giant with extraordinary experience. He is a veteran of many shield walls, of many battles. Our king, who we expected to go and fight this giant because he is our giant, is nowhere to be found. So we've seen this as purely a military endeavor. Say that again, this disgrace from Israel. And then David says this, who is? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Nobody to ask that question. Nobody saw it this way. Uncircumcised Philistine, that meant that Goliath was outside the covenant of God. That Goliath was outside the protection of God. That Goliath and the Philistines were trying to take land from a nation, land that had been promised by God. Who does he think he is? And why in the world hasn't somebody done something about this? Wow. Well, word gets back to King Saul that someone is actually talking about going down there and fighting this giant. That there's somebody perhaps in the army who's finally raised their hand and volunteered for, you know, what undoubtedly would be his last day on the planet. And so he calls David in and when David walks in, he's immediately disappointed. He's no soldier. He's no soldier. There are no scars. There are no wounds. There's nothing to indicate that he's ever been in a shield wall. And he discovers that David is a shepherd. He's the younger brother of three of Saul's veteran soldiers. And Saul sits down and he dismisses David. And David says, wait, 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 King Saul, before you let me go, I understand I'm just a shepherd boy. I understand I have no military experience. I don't even have any weapons. I'm a shepherd, it's true. But one day while I was shepherding my, my father's sheep, a lion came and took one of the sheep 
And instead of doing what most shepherds do, which is protect the rest of the flock and say, dad, we lost one. I wasn't gonna let a lion take one of my sheep and I went after the lion and I took the sheep and I killed the lion. And not too long after that, a bear did the same thing and instead of protecting the rest of the flock, I went after the one lamb and I took the lamb and I killed the bear. And your servant, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because, not because I'm a soldier, not because I have any military experience, but because And why hasn't anybody seen this? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me, I mean, I'm good, but I'm not that good. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Absolutely no confusion for David. He just sees it in a way that no one else saw it. He had extraordinary clarity. And the clarity was simply this, an enemy of God's people is an enemy of God. That Goliath isn't simply defying this army, uh, Goliath is defying God. And David's assumption was this, and this assumption would carry with him his entire life. He reigned for 40 years as king. But even as a teenager, somewhere he had, somehow he had come up with this idea, this notion that he'd wrapped his life and his faith around. That the man or woman whose hope is in the Lord need not fear, even when there is something to be afraid of. And so he said, King Saul, pick me, pick me, choose me. Let me do what no no man in your army is willing to do. Saul, King Saul, let me do what you as king are unwilling to do yourself. The interesting thing is this, later David would become king as we know. And as king, he would write, he was a poet, a psalmist, he wrote songs. And so we don't only have the the narrative, that's what's so fascinating about the story. We don't simply have what David did and what David said. Through the Psalms, we get inside of his mind. We get inside of his emotions. We understand how he thought. And later on, he would document this incredible perspective and he would write these words. He would say, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Where is your trust, David? Is it in your talent? Is it in your power? Is it in your ability and your influence as king? No, I have placed my trust in the Lord. This was the posture that God desired for the entire nation and they just wouldn't stay there. They wanted a king, but in their second king, they found a man who understood the perspective that God wanted the entire nation to maintain. And in this king, we discover a man who maintained a perspective that your heavenly father wants you to maintain and wants me to maintain throughout my life as well. He says this, no one, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. And then he writes something that kings don't write. Then he documents a thought for us that kings don't generally embrace. It's so unusual. He writes, guide me. But David, you're the king. But guide me. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my savior, and my hope is in you all day long. My hope is in you all day long. So back to the story. 15 years old, clear-eyed, confident, and yet in some strange way, humble. He makes his way down to the valley of Elah. And we can only imagine what happened on both sides as the Philistines recognize it's a boy. It's a boy with no armor. Is this a joke? 
And no doubt the laughing just broke out all along those lines. Meanwhile, we can't imagine what the soldiers were fighting for King Saul thought. It's a boy. It's a boy who's going to represent the armies of Israel. And Goliath has made a deal. If we lose, we become the servants of the Philistines and King Saul has allowed a boy to represent us. So Goliath repeats his threats and David waits and then he looks at Goliath and he says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And let me point to the future and let you know what's about to happen. I will strike you down and then I will feed the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the beast of the field, that the whole earth would know that there is a God in Israel, and this assembly will know that the Lord does not save by sword or by javelin or by spear, for this battle is the Lord's, and Goliath, he will deliver you into my hands. And then he killed him. And he instantly became the most popular person in the nation of Israel. And he became the most feared man among the Philistines. And then the Philistines made a tragic, tragic decision. They turned and they ran. And the slaughter lasted all day long. And the Israelites enriched themselves on the plunder from the Philistine camp. And David had simply done what King Saul failed to do because David saw something that King Saul could not see. And so it is with those whose hope is in the Lord. They see clearly, they act confidently, but they walk humbly. They see clearly, they act confidently, but they walk humbly. They recognize, and here's the key, they recognize that they can't control outcomes because there are too many variables outside of their control that men who walk humbly with God and women who walk humbly with God and students who walk humbly with God and teenagers walk humbly with God, they wake up every day and they realize I can't control outcomes because there are too many variables that are outside my control. So instead they do this. They lean the weight of their life against the one who has the whole world and all the variables in his hands. And they declare with David, Every morning, in you, Lord, my God, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Imagine waking up tomorrow and making that declaration before you even get out of bed. Imagine driving to work and there's things you're not looking forward to, there are things you are looking forward to. Imagine in the midst of your greatest success, when all eyes are on you and you are the smartest person in the room in that moment. And you whisper under your breath what David must have whispered under his breath a thousand times, oh Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. My hope is in you, not in me, all day long. And in those moments when it looks like the world has turned against you and that Goliath will in fact take you down instead of the opposite, that you whisper under your breath, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. I've never been able to control outcomes because I have no control over the variables that determine outcomes. That was David, an imperfect king, an imperfect man, but who never ever throughout his reign turned his back on the law of God and the God of his fathers. 
This weekend, I participated in the funeral of a 25-year-old young man that I've known from years ago and known his family. And generally, when we do celebration services or memorial services, I always invite the family. I said, you know, this is your service. We're celebrating your son, 25 years old. Tragic, tragic, tragic loss. So if you'd like to speak, you can, but if you don't want to or can't, we understand that. And in most cases, parents never speak at their own child's um, memorial service or funeral. It's just too difficult. But in this particular occasion, mom, dad, and younger brother all stood up together and each of them spoke. And I witnessed a brokenhearted father, a brokenhearted mother, and a brokenhearted brother declare their hope in the Lord. The hope that is sustaining them at this very moment through unspeakable, unspeakable loss. And I sat there on the front row and I listened to Jeff, the father, just, I mean, it was one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen, I've ever heard. So yesterday afternoon, I said, Jeff, I said, I, I, would you send me what you said? Because I could tell he'd written it out. It, it was so beautiful. I said, and would you mind if I shared a couple of quotes? I really wanted to take notes while you're speaking, but we're at a memorial service. You don't take notes, but it was just, it was just over, it was so powerful to see a father who just buried his son. And he said, I could share. So I want to share a couple of things he said, and then we'll wrap it up. Because here it is. I mean, it's one thing to put your hope in the Lord in the victories. It's one thing to try to remember to be humble when you have a lot of reasons not to be humble. But in every life, including David's, in every life there are those moments when we choose whether or not to keep our hope in us and then when you put your hope in you and the world falls, to, falls apart, all you have left is despair. But when you see something like I saw Friday and some of you have seen that, all of a sudden you realize that God's capable hands are capable even when the whole world seems to be upside down and it seems like no one has the whole world in his hands. And here's what he said. If I could bring him back, I would. I've asked God why he chose to take Alec and not me. The father should always go before the son. And to that question, there has been only silence. I must wait patiently for the answer and I must accept God's will. But it comes with a tidal wave of tears that I fear will be with me forever. And the tide of despair is so eloquent. In the tide of despair that we are fighting, there is every reason to grasp the gift of hope that each and every one of you has extended. God does this in the mystery that is his beauty in the mystery that is his beauty, in the very same moment that he has called Alec home, he has chosen to lift us up as a family. And they see so clearly, and even in the midst of extraordinary loss, they walk so confidently. And they would tell you, it's not because they're strong, it's because they've learned to place their hope in the Lord. David, as we're gonna discover, was in fact Israel's greatest king because as king, he never confused himself with the king. As it turns out, David will be considered Israel's greatest king, not because he was perfect, he wasn't. In fact, he was so flawed. But what made him Israel's greatest king is because he never confused himself with the king. His hope, even as king, was in the Lord. But in his early years, that was not always the case. And so we'll pick the story up 
right there next week. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Your Move podcast and be sure to check out our website where you'll find your next step, including resources like our free conversation starters based on today's episode. You can access those by simply clicking on the link in our show notes. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next time and we will continue to explore how to make better decisions and live with fewer regrets. Thanks for listening.